Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for January 7th, 2018. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, The Bitter Road to Wisdom. At least that is what the liturgical calendar shows. But I've said so many times, we are liturgical Baptists, which means we're properly liturgical just as long as it suits us, and then we do whatever we want to do. Apparently it suited my friend, Dr. Don Flowers, who designed the series that we are beginning today, a series called What is Wisdom? Apparently it suited Don to to deal today with the uh, the lectionary text for Epiphany. Yesterday, properly speaking, was Epiphany. Today is Baptism of the Lord uh, Sunday. Um, But it didn't bother Don, and it suits me fine, and I hope it will you as well. Monty is the only one who needs to take a little Valium when we stray from the liturgical calendar. You will note the baptism banner that Monty properly installed today for baptism of the Lord Sunday. We're pretending like today is Epiphany. We're beginning a series on wisdom. As I read the commentaries this week, I was overwhelmed at the incredible depth of this biblical text. It's a story that we know so well, but if you look at it carefully, I was overwhelmed at all that the writer named Matthew has put into this text. There is so much to be gleaned from the story, and the corpus of biblical literature really is just amazing. Scholars have pored over biblical texts for nearly two millennia, analyzing every single word, studying culture and language and history and politics and reflecting carefully, prayerfully, spiritually over the meanings to be found in those texts. For some, the Bible has a kind of magical quality to it. You know, God wrote it. For others of us, it is just as beautiful and mysterious and miraculous, but from a very human angle. The writer named Matthew had a message to communicate, and exactly like good writers do today, he employed every device at his disposal. Allusion and metaphor and foreshadowing and creativity on and on. He employed all of those methods to tell us about Jesus who had changed his world. Just listen. In the time of King Herod, well, Herod was from Idumea, the country just to the south of Israel. Herod tried to claim a Jewish heritage But it was only by his ruthlessness and his collusion with Rome that he had become king of the Jews. At the very beginning of this tale, however, Matthew is already setting up the tension for the rest of the story. That is the death of Jesus, who was killed by the Romans and mocked as king of the Jews. You hear Matthew is already setting up that tension. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but where was their home? As Matthew tells it, Mary is apparently from Bethlehem. 
Nazareth is not in the picture until maybe years after his birth. We don't know how old Jesus was when the Magi came. We don't know when today's story happens. It's only with the ears of hearing so many Christmas stories all run together, the sheep and the angels and the magi and the donkey and the shepherds and the little drummer boy all right there together. It's only as we hear it so many times that we can so easily harmonize the tensions between this narrative and Luke's more famous Christmas story. Matthew says Jesus was born in Bethlehem, period. Matthew tells it as if that is home. There is no travel narrative from Nazareth, no taxing by Cyrenius, no on-the-road pregnancy, no roomless inn, no stable. Mary seems to be a native of Bethlehem. After the birth, Matthew has Mary and Joseph take Jesus to Egypt, fulfilling another scripture which says, out of Egypt I have called my son, It's only when they return from Egypt that we learn of Nazareth. When Joseph returned, he learned that Herod's son was then ruling in in Judea. So out of fear, Joseph took his family north to Galilee. And Matthew says plainly, he made his home in Nazareth. Matthew doesn't say he returned to his home in Nazareth. He made his home. In Nazareth. As the most Jewish of our gospel writers, Matthew is keen to locate his Jesus story within the Jewish story. He does so primarily by quoting regularly Jewish scripture, our Old Testament, in order to show how Jesus has fulfilled the prophecies that he sees in those scriptures. The quotation regarding Nazareth is interesting because it employs either an innocent mistake or a clever misinterpretation. Matthew says he came to Nazareth in order to fulfill Scripture. He shall be called a Nazarene. The trouble is there is no Scripture that says he shall be called a Nazarene. What Scripture is he quoting if he's quoting Scripture to fulfill it? Perhaps, perhaps, some scholars have suggested Matthew is quoting the book of Judges, which says the child shall be a Nazarite, but this is a completely different, different word than Nazarene. The Nazarites were a sect of Jewish fanatics. Nazarites took strict ascetic vows requiring extreme devotion and prohibiting cutting hair and, and, and strong drink. Samson was a Nazarite. It's clear from reading the life of Jesus and understanding his life that he is not a Nazarite. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Here we have more foreshadowing, king of the Jews. And the question, where is the child who has been born? The question is a theological one, not a geographical one. It seems that by the time Matthew wrote, there was already tension over where Jesus had come from, where he had been born. We hear this explicitly in John's gospel, which was written a few years later. 
In that gospel, Jesus is teaching and a debate breaks out as to where he is from and how his teaching has such authority. Is this the prophet? Is he the Messiah? Someone in the crowd says, this is the Messiah. But someone else said, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? Where is Jesus from? Bethlehem? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Or is Jesus from God? Wise men. The Greek word is magoi. You hear our word magi. And these strange, perhaps Persian characters were not kings by any means. They were either something like scientists, astronomers, or something more like sorcerers, astrologers. The only other time that word is used in the New Testament, it is translated magicians, which is an interesting word to use in terms of the search for anything biblical or godly because sorcery or magic is specifically forbidden in both the Old and the New Testament. For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. The English word orient, not the verb, but orient as in we three kings from orient. That word, just like the Greek word for east, means the rising. Now, the King James says, we have observed his star in the east. But the new RSV makes the translation explicit. We have seen his star at its rising. But Matthew's usage does not refer primarily to an observation of anything in our solar system. The rising sun suggests the imagery of light, which has always had theological implications. God's first act was the creation of light. And any good first century Jew would also have known the implications of light as salvation. Salvation as light. The prophet Isaiah declared, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And Isaiah was not speaking of the rising sun. Also packed into these words is an allusion to another of Isaiah's visions. On that coming day of salvation, the prophet foresaw a pilgrimage of nations streaming to God's light in Israel. Matthew is saying here, in effect, here they are, the foreigners from the east following a star. They have found the light. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. In his commentary, Eugene Boring says, with this reference to Jerusalem, so early in the story, Matthew is again looking ahead to the passion story, that is the death of Jesus, and implicating Judaism's capital city as a whole, not only its king, all the people of Jerusalem in the rejection of Jesus's messianic claim. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, well, it did not take the writer named Matthew long to let a little politics 
slip into his story. Actually, that political commentary begins with the first mention of Herod. Matthew deliberately will not stay away from any uncomfortable implications that the way of this child of Bethlehem will be in sharp contrast to the government of his day. It always has been, it always will be. And doubling down on his political preaching, Matthew brings the religious elites into it, reminding his readers by another foreshadowing that it will be the alliance of political power and religious piety, which is always a dangerous and unholy meeting. It is that alliance that conspired together to kill Jesus. Matthew's phrase, of the people, invites further reflection. In the first chapter of his story, Matthew tells us that Jesus will save his people. He was to be called Yeshua, which means one who saves. And by so quickly returning to that phrase of the people, he reminds us that the loyalty of the people, their loyalty, and our loyalty is always an essential component of the drama. Oh my. That's just the first paragraph of the story that Amy read to you. There is so much, and I'm just beginning. Can you hear what all Matthew is trying to tell us in this story that we take so for granted? The wise men coming to give their gifts to baby Jesus. The Jesus story is theological, but it is wrapped in a specific place and a specific time, their history, which is our history, with all its sordid details, which is the only way theology ever becomes real. But we have only so much time this morning, so I'm going to skip ahead to the ending When these wise men finally find Jesus, Matthew tells us, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Many a commentator has noted that Matthew's final detail like every single one in his story, means more than meets the eye. They did not just travel home on a different road, but they left by a different way. They had been changed by their journey, which is why we call them wise men and not just three smart guys. Now we can infer from the story that they were serious students, that they had devoted their minds to some course of study, just like a careful study of the biblical text. I've tried to give you just a hint of that this morning. Just like a careful study, it's a great place to start. Learning what others can teach us about any subject deepens our appreciation about any subject. Taking Matthew seriously, not just as a sentimental, if not magical telling of the birth of Jesus, 
Taking Matthew seriously will help us to understand who Jesus was and who he is and who he was not and who he is not. Matthew was a literary genius, a writer who deftly crafts a story for an intended audience that interweaves the cultural and psychological and national and political and religious tensions of his day into his theological introductions to Jesus who will save his people. Matthew was not trying to introduce us to a literary character or to win a Pulitzer Prize. He wanted us to meet Jesus. He wanted Jesus to change our lives. And wisdom comes to no one as an intellectual prize. Only as we walk the road of life, only there on the bitter road of success and failure, of celebration and disappointment, of confidence and fear, of joy and heartache, of ecstasy and suffering. Only on the bitter road of experience can we become wise. The poet Jan Richardson says it this way. And maybe it's appropriate that we move from prose, from a detailed look at all the intricacies of a biblical text. We move from prose to poetry as we seek wisdom. If you could see the whole journey, you might never undertake it, might never dare the first step that propels you from the place you have known toward the place you know not. Call it one of the mercies of the road that we see it only by stages as it opens before us as it comes into our keeping step by single step. There is nothing for it but to go, and by our going, take the vows the pilgrim takes to be faithful to the next step, to rely on more than the map, to heed the signpost of intuition and dream. To follow the star that only you will recognize, that only you will recognize. To keep an open eye for the wonders that attend the path. To press on beyond distractions, beyond fatigue, beyond what would tempt you from the way. There are vows that only you will know the secret promises for your particular path and the new ones you will need to make when the road is revealed by turns you could not have foreseen. Keep them. Break them. Make them again. Each promise becomes part of the path. Each choice creates the road that will take you to the place where at last you will kneel to offer the gift most needed. The gift that only you can give before turning to go home by another way.
As we walk the road called 2018, we can be sure there will be bitter disappointments. There will be setbacks and failures and heartbreak. May God give us the courage to walk it step by step together and to go home by another way, knowing the wisdom that comes to all who truly seek Jesus. May it be so. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.